0: Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. Today, I'm talking with Detective Daniel Carr. Daniel has been in law enforcement for over 17 years with a large agency in Southwestern United States. Daniel also holds a master's degree in criminal justice and a law degree, both of which he earned while being a full-time police officer. Many of you know Daniel as the creator of Police Law News. Video and written content that honestly examines police incidents, police policy, law, culture, and in my opinion, addresses civilian misperceptions of law enforcement. All of it is thought-provoking, well-researched, and insightful. You can find his video content on all social media platforms and his very well-written articles on Substack. His short videos on TikTok alone have garnered him more than 135,000 followers. Daniel, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you.
1: Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here.
0: Oh, It's a thrill. You are so prolific, I can barely keep up with you.
1: Those are very, very kind words. Thank you.
0: (laughs) And I know that most people ask you how you find the time.
1: And That's a question that I get a lot. And um, really, I just take a few minutes every day to jot down thoughts and turn it into some content.
0: You know, I did my best to explain what police law news is. I've heard you explain it far more eloquently. So if you would like to explain it and the frequency
1: Yes, of course. So Police Law News is something I started just about a year ago, probably about 14 months ago. And the reason I started it is because I just really like the the conversation about issues in uh, policing and law. I just think it is so interesting. I did law school in a part-time program from 2015 to 2019. And during that time, I just had such great uh, conversations and and debates with my law school classmates, that when I was done with law school, I honestly kind of missed that. So I started Police Law News really just to extend that conversation. It started with a video, as silly as it sounds, it started with videos on TikTok, which kind of took off, and that led to um, doing uh, doing uh, stuff on YouTube. And then I started writing on Substack uh, probably about six months ago.
0: You know, you talk about the, the debate that you had in law school, and I assume it was a civil and open conversation. Conversation which you may not find so much today with civilians <laughs> and police critics.
1: That is 100% correct, that even the debates that I had in law school with people who were all very smart and educated people, and a lot of them just weren't very pro-police coming into law school, but we were always able to have a, a nice debate, a, a discussion about stuff, and then afterwards go out for a beer. And that isn't <laughs> uh, that isn't always what I find in the comments section of TikTok.
0: You've been on 17 years, so do you find it to be much different than it was when you started?
1: Yes, I think it is much different from when I started. And I started in about 2005, and I can say for about the first decade that I was on, my career went pretty much as expected. Um, I mean, there were there were police incidents that a lot of people dis- disagreed with, but those tended to stay local. What, what I mean by that is if there was something that occurred on the other side of the country, it really wouldn't affect where, where I was. Not all police officers, at least the way I felt about it, wouldn't be painted with the same brush. But that isn't the case now. And I don't know if it's just that when these incidents occur that social media, it's just able to spread so much faster and it's more difficult for police departments to- and for police leaders to really get out there and put out accurate and correct in information. It's probably a combination of all of those things, but it is absolutely different and a more difficult time to be a police officer because of it.
0: Right. And it seems that there's this negative narrative and it's fueled not only by social media, but also mainstream media. And And part of that is I think that mainstream media chooses to cover incidents in a very biased way. You know, they don't wait for the information. They don't, all they show are short video clips that fit a narrative. That is
1: one hundred percent correct, and i 'm okay with the with and I think it's important that you know, the media and everyone does have the discussions and really talk about things that happen in law enforcement, especially if it 's something that doesn 't go well, because really the goal should be is how do we improve law enforcement, how do we make Policing better. I mean, that's really the goal from from all sides. The the issue, and I guess the heartache that I have with it is that it's when an, a bad incident occurs, like the the Tyree Nichols case. Everyone agrees that that is a bad incident, and that those police officers committed a crime. But what they don't say is how rare that is. They don't say that across the United States that police officers have over 250 million contacts with citizens, and that statistically speaking, that over 99.999% of all police contacts go as expected and no one, there isn't a use of force, no one gets injured. So it's, they talk about these bad incidents, but even if there were four five or six a day, we could all agree with that they are bad, but it's such a small percentage and it's the context that is lacking. And that's where my heartache is with it.
0: Right. And sometimes what they call a bad incident is Not at the level of Tyree Nichols, and it may not be a bad incident, but it is positioned as such. Any use of force is presented as wrong.
1: That's correct. It Usually when there is a use of force. So uh, the, the most basic way that I can explain it, that a, a use of force from a police officer is a police officer literally using their physical force or the tools on their belt in order to get someone to comply who doesn't want to. That is always going to look ugly. It's always going to look bad, even if it is lawful justified, reasonable, and within training and policy. It's always going to look bad. So the less context that is put in there with that description of why the use of force occurred, the the more it is going to be where it's, it's easier for anti-police activists in order to use that for their narrative.
0: Right. Well, we, I want to get to a number of the incidents you've covered on police law news. I want to give my audience a sense of Daniel, the person, the police officer, if you don't mind, of course. Um, <laughs> what uh, what drew you to law enforcement? Growing up, I wanted
1: to be a police officer since since I was a kid, and I don't know if it's because my dad applied for one police department uh, after he got out of the army, he was rejected and never applied again, and always regretted not doing that, or if it was watching one too many NYPD Blue episodes. Uh, growing up as a kid, or if it's just I knew that I didn't want to work in an office and I wanted to do something that seemed like it was fun and interesting. And that's really why I've stuck with it for 17 years is that it's, it's just on a personal level. It is just an interesting line of work to, to be in. And um, I think that's why I always wanted to do it.
0: Was it what you thought it would be?
1: So again, the first decade, it absolutely was, uh, the first decade, uh, I was in from about 2005 to about 2015 or so. It really was what I expected it it to be. Um, uh, the, I felt like police were, were, uh, supported in their work. I feel like police officers really, especially in the community that, that I worked in, is that police officers were really making uh, making the lives better for just so many people. And I felt like that my idea before I got into law enforcement was that the ceiling that a police officer had in order to do good, that there was essentially no ceiling to how much good an officer could do. And I really felt like that was true. And then probably about halfway through my career, 2014, 2015, when the, the it seems like the, the anti-police movement really... Really took over, not just in the media, but in culture and in politics. And since then it has been a rough go for most police officers, I think.
0: Have you wanted to give up?
1: Yeah. So I've thought about leaving the the police department a couple times during my career in the last half. I ended up sticking it out and I can retire in less than a year from now. So okay. um, I'm not going to leave at this point. <laughs> okay.
0: Well, hang in there. We need you. I did hear you on John J. Wiley's podcast law enforcement today. I've interviewed Jay. Great interview. You talked about, you had a rather inauspicious beginning because when you were in the academy, there were two ambush murders on your department. Can you take me through what that was like?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I was in the police academy in the summer of 2005, and like a lot of police academies back then, the instructors weren't very nice. It was a, it was a para military-style police academy that we were always in trouble for, which, I mean, to be honest at the time, as a 22-year-old who was just out of college, I absolutely needed that. But there was one day in October, we were about halfway through the academy, so getting to be about three months in, and it was the middle of the day, and our instructors yelled at us to go into the gym. And it's one of those things where if you get called into the gym, that's where all the bad stuff happens. That's where you have to do all the push-ups and the flutter kicks, and that's where you get yelled at. Us being told to go into the gym in the middle of the day, we thought we were in absolute trouble. We thought that we had done something terrible as an academy class. And then as we all filed into the gym, we saw that there was a deputy chief of police there. And my, my agency, it's, it's usually considered a large agency. It's over a thousand police officers. So the deputy chief of police, they don't come around to the to the police academy all that often, especially unannounced. So we were all thinking that we were in a lot of trouble, that whatever we did, reached the level of the deputy chief. And um, that changed pretty quick. As the deputy chief started to talk, it seemed like he was holding back tears. He had us all sit down, which which was strange. And he basically told us that earlier that day that two police officers were ambushed and killed. Essentially, it was a call where they were serving an involuntary uh, it's called a Certificate of Evaluation, and it was someone who had mental health issues who was essentially being forced to go into see a mental health professional. And what happened was is the police officers went to the individual's house. Once they got there, he was initially compliant. He said that he, that he, he agreed to go with the officers. He then said that he needed to go get something from the rear of his house, and so he came back with a gun. And was firing at the officers, both of the officers were rehire officers. Uh, what I mean by that is they had done their career. They had done twenty years, they had retired, and they came back
0: Oh my God,
1: they were working day shift, so they didn't even need to be there. They were working day shift in a pretty safe area of town, and this occurred there
0: Oh, that's devastating that gives me chills
1: yeah it was it was it was pretty terrible. After that, our academy instructors, who again never were really that nice to us, um, anytime someone quit, they were not harassed. That that'd be a strong word, but they were given a hard time by the academy staff when they when they quit. You know, the academy staff they almost treated us like people who they had some respect for because they they basically said, "Hey, if anyone wants to leave now, if anyone wants to quit, we're not going to give you a hard time. Um, you guys can walk away without without any any consequences." At the time, we had we were down to about twenty six people in my academy class, and not one person quit. Wow.
0: And even though you weren't on the department yet, that had to have been like a gut punch, a dagger to the heart.
1: Yeah. So prior to that, there hadn't been an officer um, killed in the line of duty by by a suspect in in about twenty years.
0: Wow. And you know, there's something about ambush murders. I think. Every murder, every line of duty death is a tragedy. Every officer injured in the line of duty is a tragedy. There's something about ambush murders. It was the ambush murders here in the Seattle area that actually got me involved in law enforcement. I don't know if I've shared this story with you. I've shared it here on the podcast, but in late 2009, uh, five Seattle area police officers, were ambushed and killed. Uh, Officer Timothy Brenton from the Seattle Police Department shot and killed in his patrol car. His partner, his training officer injured, Britt Kelly. I interviewed her. And then less than a month later, four officers from Lakewood were shot and killed in a coffee shop. A month after that, there was an officer killed in a deputy, Deputy Mundell killed in the line of duty. So what I observed is that, you know, we were talking about the narrative and the uh law enforcement, but when there's a tragedy, the community seems to rise up in support. And the reason I got involved is that my feeling is you cannot just wait until there's a tragedy to show your support for law enforcement. It's something you have to show every day because you guys are out there doing this every day. Did you find this, did the community respond in support when these officers were killed?
1: Yes, the community was absolutely great.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm glad you stuck with it. Well, thank you for sharing that. I know it's emotional and um, it's it's unfortunately a tragic part of the job. You also shared that you had been nearly involved in an officer-involved shooting. And I wanted to talk about that because it demonstrates you know that of which you speak. So when you are either breaking down an incident or doing your job is, I think it's Force Investigation Team, or I don't know if that's what you call it there. That's what we call it here. Is that what you call it?
1: Yes, the Force Investigation section, yes.
0: Section. So do you mind sharing your near shooting? Absolutely, of course.
1: And there were a couple near shootings I had, but this is the one mm. that really stands out. I was uh, I was brand new. I was a rookie. I was probably had a couple months on and I was working graveyard in not a great area town. Um it used to be called the the war zone is what the was what the area town was called. And so it was the most high crime area of the city. And so, you know, every night we had shootings and stabbings and robberies. So there were all kinds of stuff that was, that was going on all the time, you know, pretty serious and violent um, stuff that we saw every day. So me and my partner, who who is is my best friend, um, we we took a call and essentially some of the comments um, or some of the information we had is that uh, a 15 year old kid had called in that uh, he lived in an apartment complex and that people were knocking on his door and kind of harassing him. So in the Grand scheme of things, the types of calls that we take, this really didn't seem like it was that big of a deal. So the dispatcher sent us that call. Uh, we let the dispatcher know when we got on scene. And she was relaying some of the communication that she was having with the 15-year-old who was, you know, supposedly home alone. And, you know, she said, okay, we you know we're going to let him know that the, the the police are there on scene, just because, you know, people had been knocking on his door, so she wanted to let him know that. You know, police officers were going to be the next ones to be knocking on the door. So uh, when we knocked on the door um, of the apartment, um, I was on the right side. my, My friend was on the left side and he opened the door. And as he opened the door, he was standing there with a gun in his hand. Um, he was holding it down, but it was in his hand, and immediately it's just one of those things. I just I wasn't expecting to see it. That I I just I, I wasn't prepared to see it. So immediately I I drew out and um, I, I I drew out my firearm. I pointed towards him and I yelled, "Drop the gun! Drop the gun!" I yelled it so many times, and it was the weirdest thing because it just felt like he just wasn't dropping the gun. And as this was going on, I just kept thinking. Why isn't he dropping the gun? Why isn't he dropping the gun?" and even though it wasn't pointed at me i know that from my that i just got out of the police academy and i know that you know from the time that a gun is pointed down to when it is pointed at you and shooting is tenths of a second faster than any human can respond and that if someone in that position wants to shoot you they're going to shoot you a couple times almost no matter what position your gun is in so i again i was yelling at him and he was just staring at me and he wasn't responding at all and this seemed to go on for probably about eight to 10 seconds. Um, I felt that I started to pull on the trigger and thankfully he dropped the gun. Um, I ended up not, not having to fire my weapon. Um, he did, he did drop the gun. And I, at the time we didn't have body cameras. We had these belt tape recorders that only recorded audio. So I honestly thought that this incident went on for somewhere between eight to 10 seconds. When we went back later and listened to the audio recording, it was less than three seconds. And it was just so strange because time slowed down because my partner was on the other side of the door. He didn't have a view into what I was seeing um, because the way he was saying the doorway, while this was occurring, my partner was yelling at me in the moment. I never heard it. Um, and it was just like, I just had tunnel vision on him and time slowed down. And it was the absolute strangest thing. Luckily, I, I didn't have to use deadly force, but I was, I was very close.
0: And what you call auditory occlusion, is that what it's called? Yes, you yes.
1: And I didn't know, I mean, that was one thing in the police academy that if they did tell us about it, I, I, don't, I don't remember it. I, I, I wasn't expecting that. And it wasn't actually until I went through force science training um, about 15 years later that I learned that, you know, this is normal. This is how the human body responds under stress. This is a normal reaction that not just police officers involved in a stressful situation, which is a lot of times how we talk about it, but this is just how the human body performs under
0: stress. And do you think that contributes to your ability to react or does it negatively impact your ability to react?
1: I, I don't think in the moment I, I don't think that impacts a police officer's ability to react I don't think it, it, it had anything to do with my ability to react where I think the problem is is that looking at it from the outside, if you're watching a security camera video of what happened, it wouldn't show that I'm feeling like their time is slowing down that right. you know i mean uh, any any audio recording would show that my partner is yelling at me and again i would I would testify that I didn't hear anything, and so that's where I think think i think the 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 problem comes in is that um, looking at it from the outside you wouldn't know what a police officer might be going through or anyone in a situation that is that that stressful
0: right and in that moment i mean i think what you said was imagine if i had fired my weapon i mean you you're in a legitimate deadly use of force situation correct
1: yes Absolutely. That, that, I mean, to me, that would have absolutely been um, a legitimate uh, situation where if I had used force, it would have been lawful. But I just think about, well, what would the narrative have been? It would have been a rookie cop who was at uh, someone's house who had called for help. He was a 15-year-old kid, and the police officer gave him less than three seconds before before he shot and killed him. And I just think that would be the narrative. And I've thought about that over the last, you know, 16 years or so. If that had occurred, you know, would I, would I be in jail? You know, would I be in jail trying to convince a parole board to release me early instead of sitting here on the podcast with you?
0: Right. And you said it was a, it turned out to be a pellet gun.
1: Correct. It ended up being a a pellet gun or an airsoft gun. Um, It it wasn't a real firearm, but it looked like a real firearm. It didn't have an orange tip or anything like that, but it ended up not being a real firearm. I wasn't able to talk to the kid afterwards because I was so mad and upset i walked away and my and my partner had to explain it to him and um i mean his his explanation that he told my partner was basically just that well i i I thought it was the police but i wasn't 100 percent sure and people were bothering me and harassing me so i wanted wanted to have something in my hand when i opened the door and um he did he didn't realize how how close he came
0: wow had the i don't remember did the dispatch ask him if he was armed
1: if they did i don't recall That's something they usually go through, but I I don't have an independent memory of that.
0: Okay. So imagine all these officers whose cases you look at that we see in the news going through that. And then it's crushing to me to think of all of you out there having to keep the community safe, keep yourself safe, make these decisions in split seconds under great duress, life-threatening situations, And with all good intentions, if it doesn't go right, you are screwed. You are just, you know, it just, it doesn't seem fair.
1: I agree. I I think that's a a really good good way to put it, is that it isn't fair. You know, we're all pretty much taught in the police academy, and you know, one of the things that I I do remember from the police academy is that they, they basically say over and over again, that as long as you follow the law, as long as you follow policy, the police department, the community, the courts, everybody will support you. And I found that isn't true when we look at different cases around the country.
0: Right. I mean, I don't know if you want to um, talk about this, but you I know you've referenced Tim Potter, right? The officer who thought she had her taser, but she had her gun and she is serving time. Can you see how a mistake like that could happen or no?
1: Yes, absolutely, and I, I we know that this happens. So, so since about 2000 um, is when they started to track these, to try to track these things, and when police officers started to use, started to kid to carry tasers on a regular basis, is that this happens approximately once a year, where you know it's called uh, taser con- confusion. The best way that I can explain how something like this could happen is let's say that you have two different cars, and I I have two different cars. I have I have a car I drive for for police work, and I, and I have a car that I drive off duty, and my my wife has a car as well the the shifter in the car is in a different place in my car in my police car and in my wife's car i never drive my wife's car her shifter is in the middle neither of my two cars have that if i got into my wife's car and i wanted to shift it into reverse or drive i would automatically reach toward towards the steering wheel because that's what my body is used to doing not knowing that it's it's and then very quickly i would realize that i, I had grabbed for the wrong thing and and that's that's the the psychology that's behind it it's that it's that Kim Potter wasn't trying to fire a weapon at Dante Wright. That wasn't her intent. It's even the judge, even the prosecutor said that wasn't her intent. But she had reached for that weapon thousands of times when it comes to training. And most police officers, when it comes to taser training, they fire their taser maybe one or two times a year, as opposed to thousands of times during a a firearms training. So when you're in a situation where stress, it could be the most stressful situation she ever had in her entire life. And she just reached for the wrong tool, just like you're reaching for the wrong drive shift in a vehicle.
0: I mean, I don't know the law. You do. I don't, it seems unfair that you would be put in prison for that.
1: So, I, on this case, I, even though there wasn't any ill intent on behalf of Kim Potter, essentially what they were looking at is was she negligent? Did her actions reach a level of negligence that they should have? And if I'm looking at this case objectively, uh, it it probably did. Um, even though we can explain how it happened, um, we we know that the 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 psychology behind it, we know that the the stress behind it, but still, I mean, was she was that a negligent thing to do? Probably, um, and her negligence um, did cause the did cause the death of someone else. Now, I, I should say that it was a lot more to that because you know she was trying to um, she did a traffic stop. It was a lawful traffic stop. He had a warrant. It was a lawful arrest. So her intentions were essentially good, trying to arrest someone. Her intentions were to do something lawful. His intentions were to do something unlawful by running from police and trying to fight with police officers. Again, it gives me heartache to say that you know technically per the letter of the law. She probably violated it, and I, I understand why that why she was convicted of that. Um, however, I believe her sentence was two to two and a half years, when it was a maximum of seven. So, I mean, in just all transparency, I'm glad that her sentence was on the lower end.
0: Right, right. It's it's tough to see. I did ask you in advance. I know that you mentioned recently referenced the Tamir Rice incident in Cleveland, and I wanted to ask. I've never talked to anybody about it. Did you want to uh, talk about it or not? Absolutely. Okay. So what I remember, the reason I brought it up is because, you know, you're standing there with this kid who has a pellet gun. You think it's a real gun. A fake gun can look like a real gun. And these officers, this was in Cleveland. This was quite a few years ago. And they... There was a 12 year old. Well, they didn't know he was 12. So the call came. Well, you probably know better. The call comes out as an armed male in a park. It's dark. From what I recall, the cops pull up and they shoot him pretty quickly. Do you have insight on that case?
1: Yes, and I don't have any special insight besides what I what I've read, um, all the, the pertinent legal documents on the case, and just people, you know, writing about the case. But some of my thoughts on the Tamir Rice case is it was it was in 2014. He was 12 years old, and and just to to start with, you know, so this case was investigated by the Department just, of Justice under Obama, and um, not to get political, but Obama's DOJ was didn't have the mindset to try to clear cops no matter what they did, and the Department of Justice did clear the officers in this case and found that they did not commit any crime. So um, it isn't just just me me saying that I, I don't think the officer should be charged. I mean, it's also the Department of Justice under Obama. And yeah, so you were correct when you described it. So there were, there was a call for service where essentially a neighbor called in and said that there was an individual who was in a park and that he was pointing a gun at people, not that he just had a gun was waving it around but that he was pointing it at people so that made it essentially a high priority call for service he all the caller also told the dispatchers, a couple other things, told the dispatchers that it was probably a juvenile and Mm. that the gun was probably fake. Unfortunately, those two very important pieces of evidence didn't make it from the dispatcher to the police officer. So as the police office now, would they have responded differently if they knew, okay, the, the, the person who's calling in is telling us this is probably a kid and it's probably a fake gun. So the police officers didn't have that information. And like a lot of these cases, my heartache, is that when the media talks about it, or when players in the NBA, like LeBron James, when they talk about these cases, they're talking about these cases in the light least favorable to police, even that if that if that isn't in line with the facts. So police officers arrive. Um, they actually, I. I, I once they uh, once they arrive on scene um, to to Mir Rice, um, he does reach towards his waistband. Um, it, it's at that point that there is there is an officer-involved shooting. I, I honestly believe that in the moment that the shooting was legal, it was lawful. Even though no, obviously no one wants a twelve-year-old to die, but I don't think the police officers violated the law. Um, if there's any criticism of this case, I think it would be how the officers responded to the call. And I, I hate second guessing things like this because it's, you know, if he wasn't pointing a gun at anyone in the moment, then you would say, well, maybe the officers should kind of stage maybe like a half block away. They should try to use um, a more like a like quiet the. Deployments to to the scene, maybe have a force array, maybe have more than two police officers. But if if their mindset was we have someone in a park who's literally pointing a gun at people, we have to get there and confront this now. And hindsight is always twenty twenty, and they unfortunately just didn't have the luxury of having all of the information that may have ended the situation in a better way.
0: Did they ever find out or look into why that information didn't get from dispatch to the officers?
1: You know what? I'm not sure. I I never heard anything one way or another if the dispatcher, but um, even the report from the Department of Justice indicates that the police officers were not informed of those two critical um, and important pieces of information.
0: So, you know, the conversation you and I just had, it would be nice if everyone could have this conversation. You know, this seems to be a tragedy. This is a kid. This is a fake gun. How does it happen? And ask the question and wait for the answer. You know, if we could just get there, things would be so much different. (laughs)
1: Yes. And the conversation that I would like to have with people and really what, what, what I try to do on a lot of the content that I produce is to not just always be pro-police or always be anti-police. I mean, when something happens, just supporting police, no matter what, like, like a, a reflex or... or criticizing the police, no matter what, like, I really like to look at these cases and look at the facts. And what I always want to ask people is, okay, this is what happened. What would you like police officers to do? So I call them like a decision points, like, okay, so police officers get the call for service. Do you have an issue with how they responded? Do you have an issue with how they exited their cars? You know, this was the first use of force. And, you know, I, what I really like to do is to find exact points where police officers made a specific decision in the moment and then say, okay, is there anything in policy or in training where they should have done something else absent that it's just really difficult for for me to to have conversations with people who want to criticize police officers but won't kind of put themselves in the moment and say this is what I think the officer should have done it's the blanket criticism about how a police officer involved shooting is bad without saying specifically what you would want the officer to do and then why
0: Mm. speaking of LeBron James Do you want to talk about the incident in Columbus with Officer Bearden?
1: Of course. Yes.
0: Well, to set this up for those who don't know or may not remember, there was a deadly use of force incident in Columbus. I'll let you describe it. But what happened is LeBron James put out a tweet attacking the officer for his use of force with the hashtag accountability and you're next in all caps. I get into that in detail in episode 40 in my interview with Nate Sylvester the officer Nate who famously then created a TikTok response to LeBron. And the reason I bring this up is it dovetails with something you wrote on misperceptions of you know why can't they just shoot it out of the gu- the knife out of his hand? Why can't they just shoot him in the knee? These two things kind of converge in the review of this incident. So I'll let you set up the incident.
1: Yeah. So this happened um, in 2022. It was, uh, it was either March or April of 2022 uh, in Columbus, Ohio, and it involved uh, essentially police officers were dispatched to a fight in progress. A police officer gets there, he he exits his his vehicle, and almost immediately what he sees is a 15-year-old girl named uh, Micaiah Bryant, and she has a knife in her hand, and she is just about to she has another girl kind of pinned up against a car, and she is motioning the knife to- towards the other girl, who's also a, a 15-year-old girl, and in the moment that the officer does fire his weapon, and he does shoot and kill uh, Micaiah Bryant right before she stabs another 15-year-old girl, it's all on video. It, it's it's all on body cam. And when I saw the body cam, I thought this is just about the, the literally the most justifiable officer involved shooting I've ever seen. I thought that this would be the example. This is what police officers deal with. Someone has a knife, which I hope most people can agree. is a deadly weapon, someone is about to stab someone with this deadly weapon, and a police officer stops that from happening. And I just thought that there is no way that anyone could possibly criticize what the officer did, and I was wrong. And that was a great interview that 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 you did on this case as well.
0: Thank you. And it was a chaotic scene. I mean, there were there was a large group of people fighting, I believe. So let's look at why you know. You and I have both heard it. Why didn't they shoot the knife out of her hand? Why didn't they shoot her in the arm? Let's talk about why that can't happen.
1: So the reason why that can't happen is because it's just about impossible. So you have to think about it this way: Um, when when police officers are trained to shoot for center mass, so essentially the middle of whatever their target happens to be, and there's a couple reasons for that: is that not all police officers are trained snipers. Typically these situations are happening under incredible stress. It's so police officers are trained to, to shoot for the biggest target if and if there's an officer involved shooting or there's a deadly force situation where all that is is visible to the police officer is a small part of the body, they're going to try to fire for the middle of whatever that is. And and mainly that's because that's their best chance of striking whatever they are firing at. And if you think about it if they're not striking if they're shooting and they're not striking what they are firing at what are they hitting? So what's what's in the backdrop? So the idea that we want police officers under stress to try to hit small targets all that is going to do is make it so police officers are missing more, and also, and I, I think we agree that police officers should only utilize their firearms in in situations that call for deadly force. So, police officer, essentially, that's going to be a situation where someone is in immediate danger of being either great bodily injury or being killed, and a police officer is trying to prevent that. Well, during the time that a police officer is trying to shoot someone's arm or leg or pinky toe, you know, they're they're missing that person who was whatever they. We're doing. How many times is Micaiah Bryant going to be able to stab someone while the officer is trying to shoot her arm? Also, I've talked about it before that you know there are arteries in the arms and the legs. I mean, I, you, a lot of people can make an argument that if you shoot someone in the leg, they're going to actually die faster than if you shoot them in the the center of their body. And those are some of the reasons why it just isn't it just isn't reasonable, practical. It just isn't really a, a human possibility to expect a police officer to. Shoot the knife out of someone's hand—it's not a, a realistic expectation.
0: I, they also say, "Why didn't they taser?" And you know, I know, just as a civilian, tasers. First of all, it would take too long to deploy a taser. This was this is an incident that required immediate because ten seconds and that other girl would have been stabbed. And a taser takes time to deploy, and or he maybe wasn't close enough. You can't do it from a great distance, and it doesn't always work.
1: That is a hundred percent. Those are both great points. Is that you know you have to be within I, I believe it's it's somewhere around twenty one to tw- twenty five feet is the absolute furthest you can be away for a Taser to actually reach. And kind of like you alluded to, they don't always work. APM reports did a study in 2018 on LAPD uh, use of a taser. And what they found is that the taser, for one reason or another, f- fails to be effective in the 40% of the time. So you have to think about it this way. So if you have a situation where someone is you know, about to stab someone, and you, the officer knows that there's a 40% chance this taser isn't going to work and that the individual is going to be stabbed. So and there's a lot of reasons why tasers don't always work. It, it isn't always the actual um, taser. It's but it's just you know if someone's moving you know you have to have so when a, when a taser fires, it basically shoots out two probes. both probes have to strike the individual in order for it to be a, a successful hit so now you have to hit basically it's basically like like two different trigger points, um, that have to hit someone, a moving target in a situation that is a dynamic situation. And again, police officers maybe fire their taser two to four times a year in training. So the idea that you're going to, um, I mean, if if it's my family member who the police officers are responding to in a situation like this, I don't want them to try to use a taser to stop a deadly threat. Right. Right.
0: Well, there is an incident that I know is of particular interest to you. And therefore, to me, <laughs> and I think to most law enforcement, and that's the Christopher Sure incident, right? Yes. Would you please tell us what happened and where that stands and the stand with Sure movement?
1: Absolutely. The quick version of this is that in April of 2022, Officer Schur was working for the Grand Rapids, Michigan Police Department. He stopped a vehicle that had on the wrong license plates, um, which you would think is, could be a stolen vehicle. Once he stops the car, the driver of the v- vehicle, Patrick Loyola, exits the vehicle. There's a, there's a conversation at the door. Patrick Loyola ends up uh, running from the police officer. Officer Schur engages in a foot chase. Hands ends up catching up to uh, Mr. Loyola in the, the front yard of a home, and it's there that he tries to make an arrest. He does so by using force. The force is progressive in nature. What I mean by that is Officer Sher initially tried to utilize his hands in order to get Mr. Loyola under control. When that didn't work, he then moved a little bit up to a taser Uh, when the deployment of the taser didn't work, Patrick Loyola actually grabbed the taser from the police officer. The two men were wrestling over the taser. And it was at that point when um, Patrick Loyola did have control of the officer's taser that he did utilize deadly force. And if we look at this situation based on the law, based on training, that most police officers would say, if an individual takes my taser from me and I think they're going to use it against me. That is 100% a deadly force uh, situation. The actual training in the police Academy, they literally say, this is a deadly force situation. If someone takes your taser, when someone takes the taser of a police officer, there's almost no more possible, a uh, justified officer involved shooting. Um, officer sure was, uh, charged with second degree murder. And, um, that case is currently pending. Uh, there was a motion a couple weeks ago where his defense attorney was trying to get the case dismissed, uh, was not successful it is going to be headed for trial in October
0: so let me just go back up a little bit being a civilian I don't know this how did he know the plates did not belong to that car
1: That's a really good question. So um, he used the computer in his police car, and he typed in the license plate number, and it comes up with what the vehicle should be. You know, you type in a type in a license plate, and it'll say that it should be to a red Chevy. And if the car driving is a black Ford, then you know that something's wrong. A lot now, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a stolen car, but any police officer would know that. You know, one of the one of the things that people do when they steal cars is they steal a car and they put the wrong license plate on it because you would think that the the license plate that was on there initially the owner would report it stolen, so that would that would come up as a stolen vehicle, so it doesn't necessarily mean it's a stolen car, but usually the wrong license plate means it's a it's a it's a stolen vehicle
0: and I'm sorry if I missed this, but was there a traffic violation? What made him run the plates
1: I believe he just he was just ran the plates randomly, just like police officers do all around the
0: country I thought you weren't allowed to do that.
1: No, you can do that. Um, uh, License plates are in public. Police officers do not need reasonable suspicion. They don't need probable cause. Police officers do not need any reason to run a license plate.
0: Okay. Why Why do we think he fled?
1: So he fled because he had... So Patrick Loyal, this wasn't his first time being arrested. He had been arrested for multiple times um, for domestic violence and two or three other times for stolen vehicles. Um, At the time, he did have several warrants out for his arrest and, again, several other arrests for stealing cars.
0: We just got done talking about how a taser isn't always effective. But what you have to assume in this instance is... It likely could be, especially when they're that close together. And if the officer is incapacitated for even five seconds, 10 seconds, this man can take that officer's gun and kill him.
1: That is, that is 100% correct. The reason why a taser is a deadly weapon for a police officer, it's because of the intent behind it. And that's the way you have to think about it. So it's not the actual shock of the taser, the, the the volts of electricity. In the police academy, most of us are tased in the police academy. So if that in and itself was you know inherently dangerous or deadly, they wouldn't do it to people while they were training them to be police officers. What makes it dangerous is that if someone takes your taser and then tases you with it, that police officer is incapable. Capacitated for five seconds. Then, anytime the, the trigger is pulled, it could be another five seconds. So, it could be five seconds. Like you said, it could be 30 seconds. During that time, the individual would have access to the officer's gun, uh, could shoot the officer, could take a rock and smash in the officer's face. So, so, basically, what you're asking a police officer to do to not utilize deadly force, here's what someone would be asking a police officer to do Hey, officer, you have someone who just committed a crime. They fought with you, they stole one of your weapons. Now they're using the weapon on you and you're going to be incapacitated. We're going to trust you. ask you to trust that they're not going to harm you while they have you in, incapacitated. That just seems like an unreasonable thing to ask police officers. And that's why in, in the use of force training, in, in every use of force training I've seen, this is considered a, a situation where deadly force is lawful and reasonable.
0: And what you're saying is it's not being viewed that way. He has been charged.
1: Yes, he has been charged in this case. And there are similar cases where officers, this has occurred where officers have, have not been charged, but it looks like this case is going to go to trial. The judge did not dismiss the case. The DA is not dropping the charges. And he, uh, Christopher Sure is charged with second-degree murder, and uh, he should go to trial
0: in October. I believe you did this comparison on one of your substacks. There was a somewhat similar incident with a... F- Subject who was fleeing but had taken the officer's taser, correct?
1: Uh, Rayshard Brooks was in a Wendy's parking lot, he was passed out in the drive-through. The employees called police officers. Officers get there and they see, like, most like I was in the DWI unit uh, for doing drunk drivers um, for four years, so um, I know that you know, when you have someone who's passed out in the drive-through, they're most likely drunk. And that's what happened here. Police officers came, Officer Rolf and Officer Brosnan went. Um, Officer Rolfe did field sobriety tests. They found that uh, Mr. Brooks, they felt that he was impaired. He cooperated during the field sobriety tests. It's all on body cameras. The police officers were nice and polite. Mr. Brooks was nice and polite. As soon as they told Mr. Brooks that he was under arrest, that changed. Um, he fought with both police officers. He overpowered both police officers. He battered them. And uh, before he ran away, um, he stole Officer Brosnan's taser and he He was running away from officer Rolf. Um, Officer Rolf was chasing him and officer Rolf during this time, he didn't utilize deadly force. He was just involved in a foot chase. Then Mr. Brooks turned the taser behind him and he, and he fired the taser at Officer Rolfe. It was at that point that deadly force by Officer Rolfe was utilized. Officer Rolf uh, was initially charged criminally in that case. Um, however, a new district attorney came in. This happened in Atlanta, Georgia. A new district attorney came in over the summer and dropped the charges and said that, you no, know, this the police officers did have a reason to feel that their life was in danger once the taser was pointed at them and that this was a lawful, justified, reasonable shooting and all charges were dismissed against both officers.
0: So is there hope that this can happen in Christopher Schur's case?
1: Uh, there was that hope, but uh, not likely now. No, there is no changeover in DA. And also the judge has determined that there is probable cause to charge officer. Sure. So um, uh, it doesn't look like the charges are going to be dismissed. Talking to people who are local there, it seems like this is political in nature, just like what's going on in, in St. Louis and, and in San Francisco, that there was a, essentially an anti-police prosecutor and they have this case. And I mean, to, to, to be to be fair, the facts of the case are different than Officer Rolf's case that was dismissed. I mean, I would make the argument um, that Officer Sure was actually in more danger than Officer Rolf because Officer Rolfe, yes, right. I feel like he was he was in danger. It was a lawful shooting, but you know the individual Mr. Brooks was still running away, and Officer Brosnan was right there on scene. Whereas when it comes to Officer Sure, is that. Patrick Loyal was not running away. They were engaged in an active fight, and there were no other police officers there. If anything, one of Patrick Loyal, the, the passenger of the vehicle, was there recording this whole thing, which, you know, you would have to think officer sure would be wondering, well, is this person going to jump in and also to try to help harm me? So if anything, I, I would make the argument and it's reasonable that officer sure was in more immediate danger than officer Rolfe was, but there is no requirement because these are state charges. There's just no requirement that the DA in Michigan makes the reasonable and correct decision like the DA in Georgia did.
0: Did you say there was a passenger? Is that what you just said?
1: Yes. Yeah, so there was okay. a passenger in the vehicle um, and he was actually pretty close while this was going on, um, recording it with his cell phone while this was happening.
0: And have you talked to Officer Schur?
1: No, I have not talked to Officer Schur. Um, however, there is a Facebook group called Stand With Schur. Um I have talked to many of the people there. I have, I have joined that group. I have been involved that way in talking with people who are close to the si- situation on the ground.
0: I have started following the Stand With Sure Facebook page and let me spell his last name so you can find it online. That's Sure, S-C-H-U-R-R. Stand With Sure, S-C-H-U-R-R. What can be done?
1: So the best thing that can be in talking with the people who created the group Stand With Sure, the best thing that can be done is to join that group um, Stand With Sure on Facebook. Um, And once you join that group, that's where where you can really get all of the information. Some of the specific things are if you see a piece of content um, on this case that you think is is, is reasonable or true, um, making sure that you you share it just to get the information out there. There are different fundraisers and stuff like that for the officer and his family. And really the hub to find all that would be the Facebook group.
0: And uh, what are his charges?
1: Uh, So he's charged with second degree murder.
0: And what was Kim Potter charged with?
1: Uh, She was charged, correct. Yeah, I believe it was some form of voluntary manslaughter in in her state. Yes. So
0: his charges harsher,
1: more serious. Yes, his charges are harsher. I believe he's looking at 20 years in prison if he's convicted.
0: So that's a big if, right? Hopefully a jury could look at this impartially, right? There's hope.
1: There is there that that's where the hope has to be. The hope has to be with the jury that they look at the facts. Um, I know that he has an excellent team that is uh, defending him in this case, and I'm sure they will find the best experts out there um, and put forth a, a very strong defense because he should not be convicted.
0: Well, and it goes to where we started at the beginning. It's like, how do you do your job? How do you that's- do
1: your job? that is that that's a that's a great question that has to be what a lot of police officers are thinking is that you know if we follow training if we follow the law, if we follow what we think we're supposed to do in dynamic and violent situations that we didn't create but are forced to respond to in the moment, is the DA going to have our back? Is the is the city and the community going to support us? And again, no one's talking about police officers who commit crimes. Who um, We could all talk uh, talk about those cases. I think we know which ones those are. So no one is defending those police officers. And that's, uh, again, I, I keep saying that I've got heartache over a lot of things. That's one of the things is what the anti-police activists like to do is they like to lump together every officer involved shooting. They like to talk about Tamir Rice and Christopher Scher and George Floyd, and they like to put them all in the same group and say, it's all bad. It's all bad actions by police officers. And it's when you get into the specifics of these cases and the actual facts is where they don't really want to talk about.
0: Well, and this is where media bias creates real danger because you are influencing a potential, you know, a potential jury pool, right? If every citizen out there believes what they're fed, that officers, like the, the piece that I did with Drew Breezy on media bias, the one that you and I and Drew connected on, episode thirty-seven, which was also a crossover episode on failure to stop, which you can find on YouTube, their irresponsibility in saying that officers create jeopardy or that, you know, if you get pulled over, you're likely to get killed. You know, it's it's not always the case. And the misinformation is dangerous, I guess I'll just say that the
1: misinformation is dangerous because we have to look at what are people's goals so you talk about the media and some of the activists if the goal is actually to make it so there are less officer involved shootings what they would be telling people is don't run from the police don't fight with the police because uh, now now not every I always say virtually zero it's not absolute zero but there is virtually a zero chance that you are going to be harmed by a police officer if you cooperate and yes i don't want police officers to unnecessarily arrest anyone or violate people's rights but we have different processes for that if a police officer violates your rights you can file a complaint you can hire an attorney to file a lawsuit against that police officer which is appropriate to do the thing to not do is to fight with the police officer on the street because the two things that make it far more likely statistically that an officer involved shooting is going to occur is when someone commits a crime and then either runs or fights with a police officer and again anyone who has the goal of lowering police officer involved shootings which i I hope is the goal, that they would say, do not run or fight from police because that is when you are most likely to get harmed.
0: Right. We do have to acknowledge Tyree Nichols.
1: That is an excellent point, And that's why I say virtually zero. Um, yeah. I've been studying, starting with my undergrad to, you know, um, all the education and the 17 plus years in policing. I have never looked at a case and said, that person should have ran from police, that they made the objectively reasonable thing was to run until I saw the Tyree Nichols case. It was, I, I could go on and on about how it was unlawful. It was it was very hard to watch. I think those police officers committed a crime and, and he was being uh, brutalized by police officers for um, really absolutely no reason.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, again uh Drew breezy did a, an amazing breakdown on Drew breezy uncuffed of just the first traffic stop with Tyree and you know how he is initially more he's compliant he is calmer than every one of those officers.
1: Drew Barisi did an, an unbelievable breakdown on this. Uh, I listened to it as well. And it it makes no sense because if the reason for the traffic stop was reckless driving, which is what they said, and I've done thousands of traffic stops for reckless driving. And the way it typically goes as you go, I'm I'm officer whoever with this police department, can I have your driver's license? There's literally no situation where you walk up to a car and immediately rip someone out of the car or yank them out of the car. And what I want to say about that is even if this didn't happen in Tyree Nichols' case. But even in situations where someone is accused of a felony, accused of a stolen car, or they committed some other type of a violent crime, this isn't how police officers respond. What they do is they do a traffic stop, and then you've seen it a hundred different times, where they line up behind, they all kind of get out with their guns and their less lethal weapons drawn, and they use the PA system to give commands for the individual to exit, to walk back. So even if they thought Tyree Nichols was a dangerous person, this is not how you deal with a dangerous person per any police practice or training that is out there. That's why I, I can honestly say like I don't know what I'm looking at. this isn't police work like I have ever seen it before and um, it is incredibly uh, a disappointing thing to see What strikes me is just and maybe just from you know what I do now with reviewing use of force from police officers is that the officers did all this knowing that their own body cameras were running. So what that says to me is that speaks to a problem that is truly systematic within that police police department, because those police officers felt comfortable enough to either think what I'm doing is okay, or... I know what I'm doing is wrong, but no one's going to see this video, anyways. So something had to happen in their career where they knew, where they knew that they were going to get away with this. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been so comfortable recording themselves committing these these crimes. And I, I almost never say that the Department of Justice should go into a city, um, but if
0: not Memphis, then I I, I don't know where. All right. Well, it's a heavy topic. You did mention that. You investigate force, use of force on the department. It is not for whether or not there will be charges. It's just to find out if they have followed policy.
1: Yes, that is that is correct. So, like a lot of police departments, we have a force investigation section. And I listened to you to your to the the episode you did um, where the officer from Seattle does that. And you know what we do is is pretty similar. Um, essentially, any use of force by a police officer is investigated on an administrative level, just to see if any department policies were violated. Uh, If there is anything criminal that is handled by people other than us. So after about 15 years of working in uniform, um, I did go to the force investigation section. I did that for about a year and a half. After about a year and a half, I was asked to do, um, to be a part of what's called the force review board. And essentially what that is, and I don't have to get into the methodology or anything. But of these use of force cases that are investigated by the force investigation uh, section, a percentage of those are essentially presented to the force review board, which consists of deputy chiefs and other city leaders where, you know, essentially we, we talk about the, we do a a PowerPoint presentation where we, we, we play the video and we explain what happened. There's also to look at, you know, what did the department do good? What the department do bad? Is there, are there any gaps in training or policy? And, you know, essentially it's like a laboratory um to try try to figure out how the department can be better. So, after about a year and a half of doing uh, use of force investigations, I was asked to essentially be the one who does the presentations and kind of like the final review on those cases, and that's what I've been doing for the last 18 months.
0: I heard you say I think to Jay Wiley, you know, wouldn't you rather have an officer like me in in your case having nearly been in an officer involved shooting and With 17 years experience and with a law degree, wouldn't you rather have me be the one examining that officer's actions versus, you know, a civilian, a DA, whoever?
1: Yes. So that was in response to Jay asking me about how do the other officers feel about you, um, you know, kind of investigating force. And um, so that would be my response. That is that, you know, all use of force investigations have to be objective. They have to be transparent. But, you know, if you're a police officer, you know, who would you want to investigate your force? You know, another police officer who has all of the same training and knows all, all of the policies or someone who maybe doesn't. Right.
0: We opened with the work you're doing now with police law news. One of the stories you most recently covered or are covering was shocking. You know, it was, I'll let you tell it. It's justice for Jaheems.
1: So this was an incident
0: that occurred in
1: Gulfport, Mississippi in October of this past year. Um, Essentially, there was a call for service where police officers were dispatched to individuals who were in a vehicle, and they were reportedly pointing guns at random drivers. A description of the vehicle was given. A police officer went to the scene, was actually able to locate the car, conducted a traffic stop. Once the traffic stop was conducted, two individuals in the car got out and ran. Both individuals were armed with guns. Um, One of the individuals, um, he's 15 years old. Jaheim McMillan exited the rear passenger side of the car. Um, and what he did is he ran from the traffic stop. So they pulled into a convenience store. So he exited from the vehicle. He ran towards towards the convenience store and he turned left. And then after he turned left, he changed direction and he turned right. Then he kind of went around another vehicle. And then he was coming essentially facing towards the police officer all while armed with a gun. It was at that point that a police officer did did fire his weapon. Deadly force was used. Um, Mr. McMillan did not survive that. One of the issues with this case is that the DA did a review of the case and just said that there were no charges going to be filed against the police officer, that because Mr. McMillan was armed with a gun, because he turned with the gun towards the officer, that this was a lawful, reasonable, and justified officer-involved shooting. And it was at the time that the D.A. put out that statement that there weren't going to be any charges. That's the point that the police body cam and dash cam was put out to the public. So there was approximately a four month gap with no police body cam footage. And it was during that four months that people, for um, many different reasons, were able to say things that just objectively weren't true about this case.
0: So the way you set it up in your TikTok, if I recall is you showed the, I don't know if it was body cam or if it was surveillance or what the video dash cam, but they, there is video of him holding the gun and yep. aiming it at police. There is video. But yes. what you're saying is the incident happened and that footage wasn't released for four months. So in that four month period, police were accused of killing this kid unjustifiably.
1: Yes. What was in the media was that, so Jaheem's mother, and this is the mother who lost who lost her son, so I don't want to say anything bad about her, ob- obviously, but I would just say that what she said in the media was just not objectively true. Both her and another mother of one of the other individuals who was in the vehicle both said that that um, Jaheem and the other individuals were not armed and that the police officers killed an unarmed 15-year-old kid. His mother specifically said in the media that he exited the store, and that's not true. He never went in the store, that he he exited the convenience store and was shot and killed by a police officer for, for no reason. The day after the shooting occurred, um, Jaheem's mother started a, a GoFundMe account, and um, she names a police officer in the GoFundMe description of who killed her son. The thing is, is the officer she mentions by name, who did get death threats, actually wasn't the officer involved. He actually wasn't even in town when this occurred. And even though this occurred in October, it had gone through through the court system. If you pull up the GoFundMe today... That same exact officer's name is still listed in there, even though, again, we have video and the family was able to see the video before the public. But even now that uh, in the description of what happened, it says that Jaheim was unarmed when he was killed by a police officer. Uh, This GoFundMe, since it was started, has raised over $90,000.
0: Let's break this down. So she comes out saying he was unarmed leaving the store. So he wasn't leaving the store. How would she have known he was unarmed?
1: The most honest answer I can give is no one in the media is going to ask her hard questions, um, mm. and I get that. Again, she's a mother who just lost her son, so even if the media might know something like that, really they just want to get her statement there. They're not looking to, to to push back in an interview that she does. But um, in some of the other, in, uh, there was another interview that was given by a mother of one of the other kids, um, one of the other young men who who was in the vehicle, and she said that her son is the one who told her they weren't armed. However, in all the documents from the DA, not only is on video, but um, the other two of the other teenagers um, inside the vehicle admit that they were armed and Jaheim was armed um, when he was shot by a police officer.
0: Is there a reason to think they were a gang or these are just... If that's the
1: case, that hasn't been made, been, been, been made public. Um, all that said is that they were driving around in a car. They were putting on masks and pointing guns at random people who called the police and the police responded.
0: Okay. So then uh, help me understand why a GoFundMe. So what was her goal? Funeral costs?
1: Her stated goal is to raise $200,000. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, like I said, it it said that he was shot in the head and that his hands were up and that he exited the store holding a McDonald's bag. I, I keep saying it, but it. I, I don't know what it's like to lose a child. So even if this was the information that she was given by his friends initially or witnesses who maybe didn't, didn't see everything or maybe she heard it a third or fourth hand. And, of course, not wanting to believe something bad about your own son. So putting this on a GoFundMe initially, like I can almost see that. But now we're four months past that. She's seen the video. The DA has come out and said it. The fact that it is still up on GoFundMe, and it's not just my opinion. This is objectively not true, and it's still up on GoFundMe. Hasn't been taken down, and it's raised over $90,000.
0: And still raising money. Still raising money. So she used the wrong name for the officer, that officer got death threats. I mean, That's
1: correct. She she blamed, uh, in, in the description of the GoFundMe, she names a lieutenant with the police department. She puts his name in all capital. And um, even the DA has had to come out and the, the police chief has had to come out and publicly say that there is an officer on our department who is being blamed for this. Not only was mm. he not on the call, but he was literally not even in the state. The Again, the police chief has had to come out and make a public statement about the death threats the officer has gotten. And as of today, his name is still on the GoFundMe as the individual who killed her supposedly unarmed son.
0: That is just enraging. And I know that you contacted GoFundMe about this. If some of us are so moved to contact GoFundMe about an unlawful or inaccurate fundraising campaign, that can be done.
1: Yes, it can. So, um, I, on some of the articles I write on on Substack, um, on Wednesdays I usually write an article about something the media typically got wrong when it comes to um issues in policing. So the article that I wrote, it, it's on there. There's a link to GoFundMe. Uh, now, on the link to GoFundMe, there is a place to essentially uh, have a complaint or, um, if you think something is is not correct, you can go ahead and submit that to GoFundMe. Um, I should just say that yes, GoFundMe is a private company. Um, I, I honestly believe. that. That private companies should be able to do business how they see fit. However, as customers, I think it's reasonable to ask private companies to treat everyone the same because there are so many police officers who are char- charged with crimes, a lot of times un- unjustly charged with crimes. And when police officers try to raise money for a defense, GoFundMe always shuts those down. So I think it's oh, really? reasonable just to ask, oh, absolutely. Yes. And what GoFundMe? And again, they're a private company. They can do-, do what they want. I just ask that everybody be, be treated equally. I think that's a reasonable thing for customers to request.
0: Why would they do that?
1: So what GoFundMe says is that um, if someone is charged with a crime, that essentially they don't want the funding to be for criminal defense of someone charged with a crime. And they kind of had that as as a blanket statement. Now, I understand that this... The, the Jaheim McMillan GoFundMe, just to be objective, isn't raising money for criminal defense or anything like that. So it is different in that in, in that respect. However, I should note that during the 2020 riots, there were many people who were arrested by police officers for rioting and for setting fires who did have fundraisers on GoFundMe that weren't shut down. But almost any time a police officer does it, it is always um, not allowed by Go, GoFundMe.
0: That is very disappointing. That's that's awful. I mean, that's you know what if that's just discrimination. I mean, that's that's just hatred of law enforcement.
1: It is. And I um, on the on the article I wrote, I not only put a link to the GoFundMe, I put a, a description of what um, Jaheim McMillan's mother said, but I also put what I wrote to GoFundMe. And, you know, it's essentially what I said. What, what I'm requesting is that, you know, if they don't take it, if they don't refund all of the don- all of all of the donations that were given, that they at least make it so it has to be an honest uh, description of what happened based on objective fact.
0: Right. Well, thank you for doing that. I mean, you do a lot to support law enforcement. You do a lot of research. You do a lot of work. (laughs) And I do think, I'm sure it feels supportive to law enforcement officers. And I do wish and hope that people who have legitimate questions will find you and be open-minded and learn. I think it's probably, you know, asking for too much, but what I like to do is talk about
1: issues that are controversial and really just have an honest discussion on hard topics.
0: So let's tell everybody where to find you and the frequency. Yes. Yeah,
1: so uh, I, I do all of my stuff under Police Law News on TikTok, Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, pretty much everywhere. Um, I post on TikTok just about every single day. And then I also write on Substack at Police Law New- Newsletter. And I, I do I typically write between two to three articles a week. Usually on Sundays, I write an article, kind of like a, a bigger article about um, an important topic, a uh, topic I think is important in, 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 in policing. And then usually on Wednesdays, I write a shorter article. Usually there's something I see in the media where they talk, about police officers or law or crime. And it just, it it isn't accurate, whether it's not accurate because they don't know, or they're, they're doing something on purpose. And I usually address that uh, on the, on the Wednesday article, but I usually write two or three a week.
0: They're very well written, very thoughtful. I sometimes forget you're a police officer. Like you have a job (laughs) that you have to go to. (laughs) You're so busy. You're coming up on retirement. When you look back on your career, what are your feelings? Are there any incidents that were other than your near officer-involved shooting that stick with you? Yes.
1: And it's, you know, I, there, there's just so many of them. And I know that as as police officers, we kind of uh, compartmentalize a, a, a lot of the stuff that happens. And, you know, a lot of times people ask me, what's the craziest call that, that you've been on? And, and I, I usually recount the story that I, I, I told you earlier. So some of the big incidents that I can remember is, you know, the first time I went to a suicide call was a 14-year-old kid That sticks with me. Um, Also, a friend of mine was uh, killed in the line of duty in 2015. Uh, There's another officer, a friend of mine, killed in the line of duty. On your department? On my department. He was killed on a traffic stop.
0: I'm sorry. Clearly, it's still raw. Do you want to talk about his incident?
1: Um. Not right now, no.
0: Okay. I'm sorry.
1: Sometimes it gets to me.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it always will. This is what the job, you know, when everyone's out there attacking the police, they don't think about what you sacrifice, you know, on a day-to-day basis, on a life basis. You know, thank you for sharing that. Um I hate to let you go on such a sad thought. I'm sure... There have been rewards, right? So what have the rewards been for you?
1: That's that's a really good question. I think some of the biggest rewards are, so I was in the DWI unit going after drunk drivers. I did that for four years. Um, I made somewhere between two and 3,000 um, arrests for drunk driving. And I always look back at that as probably the best time of my career. Not only do I think I did the most good taking all those drunk drivers off the streets, but I guess on a selfish level, I had the most fun. It was the most rewarding thing I did. That's a, a difficult place to work because you work at night and then you're in court all day. So a lot of times you're only sleeping two to three hours a day. It's a difficult job, but it was incredibly a rewarding thing. And that's what I'll look back at. I think is the best thing I did. Yeah. yeah. Are you looking forward to retiring? Yeah. Looking forward to it. And me and oh. my wife are big skiers and mountain bikers and trail running. So it'll be I'm I'm sure I'm again I'm sure I'll just do more social media stuff and I'm sure I'll get a real job doing attorney work as well.
0: Yeah.
1: Um so I don't know if I'll be any less busy, but it'll be I'm ready for something new.
0: So yeah. well I can attest to the trail running because sometimes you do your TikToks while you're out. <laughs> <laughs> <I can>. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Daniel, thank you.
1: I want to say thank you so much for having me on. I mean, I I think you do. Again, I know I told you before, but you do such great work. I love your show. I've listened to so so many so so many of the episodes.
0: Uh, thanks, thanks very much. I appreciate it. I appreciate your listening, and I appreciate your being here today. Thanks again, Daniel. I encourage all of you to find his content. I will put links to all of his social media and his Substack newsletter in the episode notes. All you need to do is go to Google or any social media platform and search for Police Law News. The address for Daniel's Substack articles is policelawnews.substack.com. I assure you, you will find it interesting and thought-provoking. I will also include the link to the Stand Facebook page. Also in the episode notes, I will include a link to Drew Breezy's breakdown of the Tyree Nichols initial traffic stop, You can find that on YouTube by searching for Drew Breezy Uncuffed. Again, I will include the link. It's a very, very compelling breakdown of that incident. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in.